Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a very interesting guest today. The guest goes by the name of Doomberg, D-O-O-M-B-E-R-G. Doomberg writes a weekly column on various financial and energy matters, primarily energy. I find it to be incredibly informative. It's available on Substack, so there's a free and a paid version. But again, regardless, the content's incredibly uh, detailed and informative. Uh, Doomberg really goes deep on a lot of these uh, economic issues that I think you know major media and well, frankly, any media just give like a, at best a surface treatment to. So if you really want to know what's going on, let's say with, uh, you know, the green energy agenda or other things like that, I highly recommend the column. The bio says that they started writing Doomberg in May of 2021. Purpose was to highlight fundamentals missing from a lot of economic policy decisions. And this is where I mentioned that, again, they, they go really deep. So we're going to talk about where Doomberg came from and uh, various issues that are affecting us today. So welcome, Doomberg. Thank you. Richard, great pleasure to be here. Who doesn't want to be discovered on the Finding Genius podcast? Well, tell me a bit about, you know, whatever you can about your origin story. How did you start writing this column and where did the character Doomberg come from? Yeah, so we are a, a very small team of former executives in the commodity sector, which is, I think, a voice that is missing in the energy debate and the climate change debate and the policy debates that that necessarily flow from those sometimes heated discussions. And what we find in the modern media is a bunch of people that predominantly work in universities or have only ever served in government dominating the discourse. And we viewed that as a market inefficiency that given our experience, we might be able to occupy. Our origin story is we started a consulting business after wrapping up our industrial careers and then COVID hit and we all had to change our business focus like many small business owners. And at the suggestion of a good friend on Wall Street, we started consulting content creators who sell into Wall Street as sort of consultants at the beginning. And then we found that we could probably do that. And one of our clients strongly recommended that we start our own thing, um, most importantly, because we would follow all of our own suggestions, right? And so we did, and we got together, we formed, and, and the brand ambition really was born out of, uh, we're sort of natural doom scrollers. And uh, we sort of, we're just sort of brainstorming one day and we thought about Chicken Little, you know, the sky's falling. And then we created a character of Chicken Little pecking away on a Bloomberg terminal, looking for things to worry about. And so that was how sort of Doomberg was born. And the tagline in the beginning was, you know, Chicken Little gets a terminal and we thought it would be funny. There's a lot of people sort of in our targeted demographic that maybe have achieved semblance of success in life. They're sort of obsessed with preserving it or worried about losing it. And this is why we think doom scrolling is kind of very popular, at least in our demographic, and that we're certainly subject to it ourselves. And so the whole concept of Doomberg just sort of, you know exactly what you're getting. Uh, and that's how it started. And over time, of course, as we've gotten better and we had grown beyond all anything we could have possibly imagined when we started, we've gotten sort of a bit more professional, a bit more serious and do these deep dives that you described in your opening introduction. And it truly is what we were meant to be doing, which is a, an enormous blessing. And I say, you know, I tell friends and people that we mentor that when you do, if, you, if you're lucky enough to stumble upon what it is that you were meant to be doing in life, for heaven's sake, just keep doing it. And then just doing it for the better part of two and a half years, we've blown 
away our wildest uh, dreams. And uh, we've been very careful to not recalibrate what our wildest dreams are to sort of mentally and internally spin a life-changing win into somehow uh, some form of a defeat. And we just, you know, we publish six to eight times a month on topics that we happen to know a fair bit about and have a unique voice on and our it really resonates with our audience and so it's really been an amazing thrilling ride i mean what's the goal of your publication is just to get a deep dive on energy policy and other related issues out there so your audience you know if you're reaching now a lot of high level decision makers do you feel like you're influencing people that have the potential to influence policy what created Doomberg and the brand, you know, we were very systematic about building a business around it. We were very authentic with our audience from the beginning, our earliest followers about our intent to eventually create this into a paid newsletter and, and have it become the thing that we do for a living, which it has become. And we're very careful to define sort of what we call the five pillars of our business, brand, channel, technology, demand, creation, and operations. And under the brand umbrella, we spent a lot of time dwelling on our ideal clients and who they are, and we create character sketches for them. And our objective is to delight our ideal clients. Like any, any business can be described through the lens of its ideal clients and who they are, where they hang out, how do you find them, how do you entice them, and how do you delight them? And our ideal clients are you know, pretty sophisticated consumers of the news who happen to have some sway in the public discourse, either because they work on Wall Street or they work in industry or they work in government. And our objective is to be provocative without being polarizing, to, to be funny without being silly, and to teach without being self-indulgent. And we have a view of the world uh, we happen to think it's the correct view because we have obviously decades of experience on our team and are authentic people and we would never write something we don't believe. And so to the extent that we can participate in the debate, to shape the discourse, to delight our ideal clients and make a living doing it, then this is what we sort of call a quadruple win. And that's our real objective. Are you able to say if there's been any uh, surprising people that subscribe to your list or reply to your content? You're like, wow, I didn't know we reached that person. That's great. We, I would say, sure. Just the size of the audience is, is surprising. And then once you have such an audience, you know, they say you never want to meet your heroes, but we've been able to meet an, a sizable number of people that we really respect in the content space. And it's been a, a thrill. So it's a small example. I mean, I'm, you know, Jim Grant at Grant's Trade Observer is a subscriber and now has become a friend in our real lives. And, you know, people like Grant Williams and Tony Greer and all these other content creators that have been able to sort of carve out brand in a business in the space that we've been able to interact with, get to know, help and be helped by and ultimately become friends with is, is pretty amazing. And I, if you'd have told us when we started this journey at the depths of COVID, when we lost the majority of our old consulting business through no no actions of our own, of course, that we would be, you know, on a friendly basis with somebody like Jim Grant or Grant Williams, we wouldn't have believed you. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, that's that's very cool. So again, what do you hope to accomplish in addition to delighting customers? Um, what I can see, well, I guess there's a couple questions here. So one is, so your recent post about possibly not posting much or at all on X or Twitter because of what's going on there. The content creators that I followed on YouTube and various major media channels, you know, online, they seem to have to go towards sensationalism, clickbait. Oh my God, this time it's really the end, that kind of thing. You guys don't do that. You have a very uh, calm, you know, slightly sarcastic, but it's funny, uh, but a very calm analysis of what's going on with various issues. How and why are you able to maintain that when so many other creators seem to, again, go towards hyperbole? So this is a very important point. We used to write more often these pieces called The Work of My Life, where we would describe the progress of the project and get our most loyal supporters to help us along the way and share the data and metrics around it. And we wrote one about the disease of more, which is something that people tend to fall into, which is why I said earlier about our strong desire to not recalibrate what beyond our wildest dreams means, to not move the goalposts. So 
in full disclosure, we are making more than enough money doing only what we love all day, accepting no useless meetings. We have this ratio that we optimize and measure internally called what is our get to have to ratio and how can we grow it? So how much of our time is spent doing things that we would characterize as we get to do that? Like I get to be on this podcast. I was looking forward to it versus, you know, when you file your taxes, that would be a distinctly in the, the, the have to category. Well, what is that ratio? How much of your time are you spending on get to versus have to? And how can you grow it? How can you outsource the have to's or just eliminate them from your life by simply not doing them. When you have way more than enough, the pursuit of more becomes a disease. And I too observe content creators selling their brands out in the name of more when they clearly by all normal people's measures have way more than enough. And so we're not going to, in fact, you know, we, we're debating internally. I'll just give you a small factoid. And um, we spent precisely $0 generating our list. It's all been sweat equity, earned traffic by podcast appearances or when we built our Twitter account and I'm happy to talk about why we left it. Everything has been a very small team waking up every day, studying the data, understanding what we need to do, staying within our brand and working hard, push the number up, right? Wake up, make the number go up and repeat. That's one of our phrases internally. And we studied the data. Why did this piece not land and what could we do to make it land a little better within the context of our brand? So our view is the brand is everything. And brand is a gut feeling, right? The brand, the gut feeling we wish to induce in our, our ideal clients is the following. When our email arrives in their inbox, they say to themselves, ooh, I get to read that. Behavior strays from that brand in the pursuit of clickbait, in the pursuit of volume, in the pursuit of you know numbers over quality, then we will have destroyed the essence of what Doomberg was meant to be. And in our view, the value of the brand so far exceeds what we could ever possibly need. Why would we risk it? It's good. And it can work. Like we've, we've observed people who are just raw numbers, right? Like for example, I subscribe to a relatively alternative newspaper's free email list, and I am the recipient of four emails a day from this organization, which I won't name, but you would all know it, begging me in various ways to sign up. And it's a very simple formula, and I see it, and they pound and pound and pound and pound. That's not our business model. That's not our brand. The moment we slip into that, we lose the essence of it. The entire brand proposition to our ideal clients is authentic, deep dives on complex topics written in a language that is accessible with a touch of humor, a willingness to admit when we're wrong and to correct the record if we're ever, you know, uh, meaningfully in, in error, and uh, totally responsive to our customers. Every single email gets responded by either me, the head writer, or the editor-in-chief of Doomberg. Uh, every comment on Substack to one of our pieces gets a direct response from me, the head writer. We are a very, very small team. We've hired nobody. We've spent nothing on domain creation. And um, we joke internally that if we hired 10 people, we'd be 20% more effective. It's funny. We are super lean, the lean startup, right? And um, we eat what we kill. It all accrues to us. We've taken on no outside money. We've not, we've resisted the temptation to be, we have people approach us to buy us and all the various things that happen when you have what looks like to be an overnight success. This is what we were meant to do in life. We're going to keep doing it. And for years, just show up, make the number go up and repeat and enjoy life and be with our families. And we work surprisingly manageable hours and, you know, life's too short for the disease of more. I mean, that the, the story we told in that piece was, imagine being Tom Brady, multiple Super Bowl winner, multiple most viable player in the NFL, married to, to a supermodel, you know, Giselle Brunson, and yet still selling out his reputation to Sam Bankman-Fried and, and FDA. Like, yep. what a disease. And I would rather make do with one one hundredth of what Tom Brady has than to sell out our brand. And that's just um, who we are and how we intend to make the most out of this life-changing miracle that has uh, befallen us. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, 
researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. No, it's excellent. I was, I was going to say, this is not to puff you up or anything, but when I look at various, again, content creators and everything is hyperbole and what they're saying in their headline is not delivered, or maybe they'll give you one snippet of something in their content piece, then I, I start to ignore them because it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Hey, look, there's a picture of them holding their head in their hands. The end is near. This is the 55th time they've said it. And I know that whatever they say in their headline, even though it's compelling, is just not going to show up in the content. So it's like, eh. I turn a deaf ear now. But your guys' stuff doesn't come too often. When I see it, it comes into a busy email box I have. So I forward it to a much quieter one and I star it and then I leave it there to be read, you know, in the next day or so. So just giving you some, I guess, inside baseball just on how I treat your stuff. But I know what I'm going to get. I'm always going to get a great analysis that'll interest me and things I have no clue about. And that, you know, I'm not in a position where I guess I've made decisions based on the energy issues you bring up, but it definitely informs my worldview. So I just want to thank you for your formula. At least for me, it's working. And that's feedback that I hope helps you. No, I, this is the exact ambition that we hope to achieve with our ideal clients. And so as part of the five pillars of our business, one of them is operations. And we have a 25-point checklist for each piece. What's the title? What's the one-sentence summary, which becomes the social preview? Do we deliver against that social preview exactly as you just articulated? What is the opening story that gets people interested? How do we sort of convert to the things we want to say? Do we say them? Do we have the data to support it? Do we provide our homework? You'll notice we have an enormous amount of links in our pieces so that the readers can go and verify the work that we've done so that it doesn't look like we're manipulating. And uh, what's the thumbnail? You know, what are the, you might notice that in, Whenever we provide a chart or a picture in our piece, we occasionally try to put a little humor in the caption. And every single objective in our belief is that if it can be measured, it can be optimized. And we have a mindset of continuous improvement. So feedback like that is invaluable. Thank you for giving it. It's exactly our objective. And in anything in life, if you start out with a reasonable plan, you're willing to find out what the price is and to pay it, and you have a mindset of continuous improvement, success is, is inevitable. That last part is the most important part. Like, our piece, I can't read our first pieces, but if we hadn't done our first pieces, which are insufferable to me today to read because they're just cringy, we would not have had that foundation from which to improve. And we're still improving. Today's out of date for me. You caught me in a good time. And so I get the day off and I get to think about the next piece, but that piece is going to publish tomorrow and we're going to see how it does. It's an interesting piece. It's, it's one that you would not have probably realized, which is that Australia has a massive diesel refining crisis and can't refine its own oil anymore. And given Australia's critical importance to metals and coal and various energy and timber markets, you know, this is a underappreciated risk to the global economy. And, and that's going to be the piece. And have we researched early and have we done it? And is it tight? And how much do we put ahead of the paywall versus when do we go behind the paywall? And, and this is every single, this is piece number 225. And I'm I couldn't be more excited to publish it and to learn from the data that flows from from what happens after we hit send. And you can hear the passion in my voice. It's not something you can fake. And so there is no clickbaity, spend a bunch of money to make slightly more money and repeat strategy that we have found that works. What we have found that works is authentically do what you are meant to be doing and keep doing it. I don't know if there's a wish for this, but you know, people that get your pieces and they say, oh, I, I want to know more about 
aluminum production. You know, you guys had a great article on it. Do you guys offer any consulting or advisory services for people that want to go further? You're doing research for an entity. We have a residual consulting business where we've kept the best clients that we had from our old business, which again was largely torpedoed by COVID. But no, we don't do that. And here's why. We're a very, very small team. I say that you could count the number of people that that are on the DeBerg team on one hand and have several fingers left over. And we have decided that the magic is worth preserving. So there's lots of things we could do. Again, in the sort of pursuit of more, we could take on sponsors, we could take on brand of, you know, we could do branded posts, we could create a consulting business and outsource it to other people to, you know, to deliver whatever it is that these people want. We're going to do none of those things. We're going to just keep doing what we're meant to be doing, which is research, writing, editing, publishing and promoting six to eight pieces a month and generating way more than enough for the, the families involved. Now, when we do have a pro tier, which is a higher level tier, which in addition to getting our pieces gets a monthly webinar with the Doomberg team and open Q&A and access to a special email where we will, of course, respond to inquiries, but we never solicit that list or consulting business nor charge for any analysis that we would do. They're just a select group of our biggest fans who would like to pay us a little more, but also get a little bit more access to the Doomberg team. But no, we certainly could peruse that list for consulting clients and we know how to build a consulting business. We used to have one. But the consulting business, Richard, is all about selling time, whereas the subscription business is about scaling time. We have a finite amount of time. It, it was meant to be deployed against creating the Doomberg subscription business. And once we fall into the trap of reaching for more, we risk losing the magic. And the magic is very important to us. And look, I could tell you, I've had a pretty good career. I had a pretty good education track record. I'm a PhD and I was an executive and I led teams with hundreds and hundreds of PhDs all over the world working on renewable energy projects and alternative energy projects and commodity projects. I've been all over the world. I've, there's nothing that gives me more pride than the Newberg experiment in the past two and a half years and the work that this small team has done. And I'm, I'm so hesitant to risk any of it by reaching for more. I'm more than happy with more than enough. And far too few people in our society ever get to achieve that. And gosh darn it, as hard as we've worked, why would I move the goalposts? And so I know that was a bit of a longer answer than you might have expected. But um, now we have actively turned down probably a couple of dozen solicitations for consulting work. We'll help for free. We'll have, we'll have a phone call. We'll jump on a Zoom call. We've probably helped 40 or 50 other Substack authors as they've tried to build their audience. And and learned a lot from that as well. We'd much rather give it away, surf the sea of abundance. Look, once money changes hands, relationships change. And there's just no getting around that. And so we're busy enough delighting our ideal clients, responding to emails, responding to comments, writing the next piece. Look, as soon as I get off this podcast, even though it's at a day and it publishes tomorrow, I'm on the next piece. I got to think about what the next piece is. I've got four or five ideas in my head, but if I don't settle on something by tomorrow or I'm going to be late, you know, we're publishing every three to five days and start to finish very small team. And so I don't have, I don't have the bandwidth for consulting and I would much rather scale time than sell it. That makes sense. In terms of the research that you do, how long did it take you to do research early on versus now? I mean, I, I, I would guess again, since you're doing continuous improvement or Kaizen on everything, you probably refined your research method where it works really well for you. Any useful tidbits of info on how you've improved that process for yourself? Yeah. So our advantage, of course, is that we have decades of industrial experience to rely upon it. And in particular, in my career, our, uh, there was a period of time in my career where I was at the center of a lot of research money flowing into the commodity energy space. And through that experience, I was able to develop what we call internally sort of a molecular map of how the world actually 
the world actually worked. And so a typical Doomberg piece is we'll stumble upon a news item which triggers a story that we remember from decades ago or years ago or weeks ago. And we can connect that story to the piece and put a different spin on the piece with four or five other pieces of data that we then research and fill in the story. And then it comes together very quickly after that. And so that's just the formula that works for us. But whatever it is that you're passionate about, a very similar formula works sort of the, the hook story offer standard marketing strategy for content, right? I mean, if you don't catch the audience's attention early, they're going to leave you. And then if you don't, you know, give them the story and then, you know, the offer is finished reading the piece in our case. And so it works that way. But we do have a, like just next piece about Australia and their lack of diesel refining. We saw a story where a single crane dropped a compressor at a refinery in Australia, and that has knocked out 50% of Australia's domestic refining capacity for three months. Oh my God. Well, what does that tell you about the state of Australia's domestic refining capacity? And we knew intuitively, since they're so critical for coal and timber and lithium and, you know, pick your favorite metal, they're the mining, one of the mining capitals of the world. If they can't refine their own diesel, and we knew sort of intuitively that these mega refineries in Asia were putting small refineries out of business, then once we dug into the details, the the systematic decay of Australia's refining capacity that's ever increasing reliance on imports puts them in an incredibly vulnerable spot. And then the story that we tied to it was a book I read in high school called On the Beach. I'm not sure if you've ever read that book. It's a story of some Australians waiting for a, a radioactive cloud of death to arrive because the Northern Hemisphere has has gone full nuclear and killed itself. And everybody knows date certain when that cloud is coming. And the book is sort of a horrifying and very sad story of how each of these individuals, you know, approach end of life. And, and what, how does that connect to Australian refining? Well, the story only works as Australia, as the setting for the story, um, because of its remoteness. And Australia is incredibly remote. And anybody who's ever traveled over Asia decided to make a stop in Australia knows just how long that flight is from basically any airport in Asia to Australia. They're very remote. They're very isolated. And they cannot refine their own diesel. And their entire economy relies on diesel. And our access to their critical resources also relies on diesel. And this is the story of the piece. And the one sentence summary of the piece, which becomes a social preview, is something to the effect of Australia's diesel crisis is an underappreciated threat to the global economy. So when you get that email and you forward it to your account and you're going to see the social preview, you know that we're going to deliver against that one sentence summary. No, that makes sense. When you look at the, I know you have many, many years of experience and your team does, again, in the energy sector and you, you spoke about you know, the different positions you've been in briefly. But now that you're doing this research, now that you've done 225 pieces, what does the totality of it look like to you? Do you guys sit back and reflect and go over the pieces and what you learned? And now do you have a, a very different picture of the world than before, where you had that already from working in industry for so long? I say we have a far more refined picture of the world. Like the pixelation is much more defined. The broad strokes of what we believe to be true which are based on physics, have held. But interesting nuances and tidbits of knowledge and tactics and interconnectivities that we've learned as a part of that. There's no question. There's sort of a network effect that as we write more and more pieces, our knowledge and our ability to connect dots becomes much more strong. And so we've been able to grow in quality with our audience, which of course is why I find it so difficult to read the old pieces. And in fact, there's this enormous benefit for us. When, when we first started this, we wondered whether we would run out of things to write about, but the speed with which we are filling in those pixels allows us to uh, more quickly identify a news story, uh, a headline, and boom, a piece is born. And uh, pieces aren't super long. We, we are 
cognizant of people's ever reducing attention spans. The average, the ideal Doomberg piece takes six to eight minutes to read. We we have an expression internally, which may be a little bit harsh, but we like to say any idiot can say a lot with a lot of words. We pride ourselves on the density of information and the brevity with which we can relay a relatively interesting set of facts mixed in with a bit of humor and light sarcasm. And so a very, very important part of this is the power of, a, of an outstanding editor. Many writers confuse editing with proofreading and they're radically different things. We have a world-class editor on the team and really hand in glove. And, and once I hand off the piece, I have the lack of an ego to worry about whether certain phrases or certain flows makes it into the final piece. I don't care. Like I trust that our editor is going to turn whatever it is that I turned in into something really good and that our audience will love it because we've done it 225 times and now we know. Yeah. I don't know if you have this. I don't think so, but is there a way or a wish or would it be helpful? I mean, for me, it would, but if you're able to add an audio component where the article can be read to you instead of reading it, you know, some people are just very auditory like myself, be cool. Just a suggestion for you if you want to. I think Substack actually already allows that, but I'm not sure. I couldn't do it because I am not capable of pronouncing some of the words that we write. And so I have an insecurity about that. We have had that request. I would say it's less than 1% of our subscribers who feel that strongly about, you know, Substack as a platform is a written platform and draws readers. For example, we have had various social media gurus reach out to us talking about how we should be converting these into YouTube videos or TikTok videos or Instagram videos. And we've done none of that. And maybe that's dumb of us, but it, we are writers. We believe in the written word and that's the market that we're, we're trying to occupy. Well, actually, you know, because the organization is Doomberg and there's no names or anything. And again, you don't post on certain channels. I would guess your attack surface, maybe a lot less. I don't know. Like, I hope it hasn't happened, but have your articles been attacked by people saying, oh, it's conspiracy theory or, or any of that stuff? Or uh, you don't really get that maybe because you don't engage in hyperbole. So if you spend enough time on the internet looking for people saying bad things about you, I can guarantee you one thing, you will find them. We just don't care. We write authentically. We write for our ideal clients. We have closed our comments section to paying subscribers, which helps. We like to joke that if you would like to troll us, that's fine, but you have to pay us for the privilege. We have left Twitter for a variety of reasons, and we're still active on Notes, which is Substack's sort of variant of Twitter. But by and large, we have learned over the years that if you're going to have any semblance of a public persona, there will be people who are jealous of your success, who will try to slipstream into your social media audience to grab attention for themselves. None, none of these people matter. And so our objective is to delight our ideal clients. Now, if we put a piece out and a half a dozen of our pro-tier subscribers sent us a scathing email, we would that would be data that we would count. I would view trolls as noise. Good. Uh, and so when you know what you were meant to be doing, what other people think of you, look, if our friends or our family or people in the content world that we respect were suddenly reaching out to us saying, what are you doing? You sound a little angry in this piece, or this piece crossed the line from provocative to polarizing, or this piece was a little silly. I mean, our, I thought you guys were a serious organization. That, that would make us take a step back. We're not immune to criticism from the right sources. And we have our trusted friends and contacts and key ideal customers that we've gotten to know over time. People that comment on all our pieces or routinely send us emails. You know, if one of those reached out to us and gave us a forceful critique of something we wrote or something we said on a podcast, that that would give us pause. But strangers on the internet who are looking to cancel people because they don't like their opinions or, you know, we could care less. Really, it's quite a liberating way to live. 
No, that's excellent. Again, with all this this research you've done, I don't know, what's your overall view on where is the world heading? Do you see that we're kind of headed for disaster? Do you see that we've become, again, as a society, just corrupt? Or do you think, you think things will right themselves and kind of go better? Or do you think that we're headed for, uh, let's say, a number of crises? Like, what's your overall view as of this point, the West over the next few years? All of the above. I think we are on a deeply naive path, which is truly the luxury of the temporarily rich. And I think we will be embarking upon a series of rolling crises. And so in the short to medium term, we are bearish, but in the long term, we are bullish because we do believe that in the long term, once you know the turning of these crises runs its course, that what comes out on the other end, inevitably, we think, because we're bullish, the human spirit will be better. We have a lot of problems in society today. And so the status quo is not good. And it might be that those problems will increase before they before the tide goes out and we have some return to normalcy. But right now, politically, economically, even scientifically, the world is heading towards a period of concerning turbulence. But Doomberg is slightly hyperbolic by design. And deep down, if you are a longtime reader of our work, you would know that we are pretty optimistic. We know the path forward. We believe we know the path forward and we're willing to articulate it and to advocate for it. And we do believe that citizen advocacy is still a thing. I think the corruption that we see, especially in the U.S., uh, is necessarily a temporary thing because otherwise the prospect of, of it persisting is one that we should all shudder. And by the way, this is a bipartisan issue. We are politically aware, but we try to be apolitical in our analysis. But all of this is sort of temporary. We do think that you know once the crises abate and sober heads are forced to uh, to engage. Right now, there's an awful lot of talented, ethical people that will not engage in politics because it's just a, a sewer, and that can't end well. But it has to end, and eventually there has to be sort of a a new way forward. We do believe there will be a new way forward, and we want to be prepared for that and to have our positions laid out and to help others do the same. Well, this may be, a, I don't know if you want to do this, but if you were able to project yourself into the mind and body and experience of like just a regular person, let's say in the US, what do you think that they're experiencing? Are they getting anywhere near, uh, you know, through news and other media, are they getting any reality or is it um, a complete distortion? Um, are they merely just a puppet for various interests that will use media to to push or sway their opinion in one direction or another? Like, what's your assessment, I guess, of the average person? You know, not there's nothing wrong with them. What what kind of environment are they swimming in, do you believe? There is a troubling trend of algorithmically dividing people into narrow buckets and feeding them exactly what it is that those algorithms think they want to hear. I do think there's a degrading of the public discourse and the loss of the credibility of the traditional media outlets is unfortunate. And I do think Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all these algorithms are constantly studying everyday citizens and feeding them the exact things that will most confirm their biases and the ability to have a reasoned debate where the objective is not to cancel the other person, but to learn from the other person is becoming more rare. That is the current trend. That doesn't mean it's the inevitable one. And I do think the average person is more concerned about the price of food, the price of gasoline, the price of electricity, the price of housing, the price of education, the price of healthcare. And the elites that run our country are so out of touch with the average person. You know, we do have a significant advantage in that we live in flyover country, in a rural part of flyover country. And we have a different view than, say, the politicians who live in D.C. or the professors who work on the big campuses whose you know salaries are literally guaranteed by 
you know, by tenure, we do have a slightly more realistic view in, into the world. And the average person, when they're not being fed bite-sized quanta of dopamine hits by the algorithms, is more worried about the fact that the grocery bills are 14% higher than they were last year. Yet the man on the television is telling them that inflation is under control. And, and I do worry that that lost in trust in our basic institutions is, is a real challenge and perhaps one of the greatest challenges to getting from this period of trouble to a rebirth on the other side of it. Are there a topic that you guys want to cover, but you just feel like it wouldn't it wouldn't be coherent with the brand to do so? Do you feel like there's topics that are necessary that you're going to have to start covering and maybe expand beyond what you're doing or just change it or it'll keep working and you'll never run out again as, as for now? What are we going to write about? But now it seems like there's endless things. So it's a great question. We have a very firm rule that if we would never write about it, we don't tweet about it. We don't talk about it on podcasts. And our you know, secondary component of that rule is we, we generally should have some semblance of expertise with something new to add to the discussion before we would embark on it. So there's a whole swath of hot button issues that you will never see Doomberg tweet about when we're on Twitter, post about on notes or write about, you know, you pick your favorite hot button issues of the day, race, gender, sexual orientation. These are all serious issues with complicated questions to be answered by society, but we have nothing particularly useful to add to those conversations. They tend to very quickly de dissolve into polarized, closed-minded sort of debates. And so we just stay away from them. And we focus on, you know, we stick to our knitting, energy, finance, the economy at large. Uh, we have a pretty strong finance background on the team. We have a very strong energy background on the team. We have good pattern recognition. We know how to tell a good story, but we will avoid buttons. Now, look, we're not afraid to get into the arena on climate change and renewable energy and solar and wind and nuclear and natural gas and coal and oil and carbon capture and pick your favorite, uh, where we have some expertise to deploy and where our brand is sort of conditioned our readers to expect us to write about those things. But the, the Doomberg Twitter account, for example, was never my personal Twitter account and no matter how I felt about whatever Supreme Court decision was being handed down that day, we would never articulate that through the Doombird Twitter account because that's not what that Twitter account was for. Um, I have my own personal views, but it doesn't mean that we should express all of them through the Doombird Twitter account. The purpose of, of Doombird is to delight our ideal clients in the areas where we have some expertise to add and we could shape the discourse. And so, yeah, there's all manner. For example, we won't be endorsing any political candidates uh, in the 2024 election. We might comment on their policies and we might be, say, critical of you know, Robert Kennedy's Jr.'s um, rather silly stance uh, against nuclear power. And we might be supportive of Joe Manson's position around the need for natural gas pipelines across the U.S. And we might support Gavin Newsom's decision to keep Diablo Canyon open. And we might be you know, very critical of Mitch McConnell's decision to trade off some important energy policy in the name of politics. You're getting some judges approved. But we are not going to be a political first publication. There are plenty of those. The number one publication on subs is a relatively left-wing leaning op, and she does a really fantastic job of delighting her ideal clients. It's rather partisan for our taste, but we would never embark upon such adventures because that's not, that's not the work of our life. It's not where we have any expertise to add. And nobody's coming to Doomberg for those things. So why would we try to force feed it? Yeah, you're very zen about the whole thing, but it works, makes sense. The product's excellent. I appreciate that. Let's tell listeners, uh, how can they get exposed to your content? Where can they go? Yeah, the only place to find us is at doomberg.substack.com. And in Added within there, you'll see our participation on Substack's notes. Free subscribers get a preview to every piece, and occasionally we will also publish a free one and 
or highlight that list, you know, podcast appearance or two. And then obviously we're 100% subscriber supported and our paying subscribers are the, they're the spoon that stirs the dish and they get the full access to the Doomberg team as we described earlier. So doomberg.substack.com and Richard, it's probably not the conversation we both thought we would have uh, at the beginning, but actually it was quite an enjoyable one and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we didn't go into tons of specifics, but I think it was very, very useful and instructive. Just the way you have your values, you understand what you're doing, you understand what will be crossing a line for you, everything's well-defined, you know, continuous improvement. I think there's a lot of lessons in what we discussed. So I'm not worried. I think it was very useful and I'm glad you came and thank you for coming on the podcast. Me too. Appreciate it. And looking forward to coming back next time, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.